Last week, current and former Federal Reserve officials offered a mea culpa, saying the timing of the 2015 to 18 rate hikes may have curbed a potentially quicker recovery from 2008. Apparently, seven to 10 years is not enough time. Well then, if time is the problem, your podcaster will take a page out of Hugh Hendry's book. Recently, the early 21st century Scottish philosopher suggested the Fed would be taken seriously at its attempt of irresponsibility if it was headed by the funny mixed martial artist media sensation Joe Rogan. Why not then filmmaker Christopher Nolan? He offers Rogan-style pyrotechnics, plus he knows his way around time. In Memento, he reversed it, telling the story from back to front. With Inception, he slowed it down, allowing multiple realities to exist simultaneously. Interstellar showed him capable of harnessing no less than the gravity well of the black hole Gargantua to steal decades of time. And in his latest opus, Tenet, Nolan folds all of these ideas into the same movie. Not just the same movie, but the same frames. Entire sequences are shown with characters and objects sharing the same space, but not the same eddies of entropy. Hopefully the point survives the exaggeration. A true fundamental overhaul is long overdue, and recently the Federal Reserve did perform just such a review at the end of which it announced a new grand strategy. In this, the 25th episode of Making Sense, while we wait for Rogan, Nolan, or Deus forbid anyone with authority, Snyder offers his review of the new grand strategy. Hello everyone, welcome to today's show. Today we're going to be reviewing last week's grand new strategy announced by the Federal Reserve, and we're going to look at it through the perspective of three lenses, the scientific method, inflation, and employment. Now, before your eyes roll into the back of your head, please stick with us because this is all about helping you understand, you learn how the creation and destruction of money affects your finances, your economy, our politics, our society. This show is called Making Sense. It's a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am joined by Jeff Snyder, a man who's not afraid to peer into the shadows, to bring the torch of knowledge and shove it into the shadows and illuminate it for all of us. Jeff, pleasure to speak with you again this week. Good to see you again, Emil. Absolutely. Uh, so every week you post six, seven, eight, nine articles, blog posts at Alhambra Investments. And then once a week, you post a nice long essay at Real Clear Markets. And I would say, no offense, Jeff, that this one is more approachable, more enjoyable for the people that don't want a lot of graphs or math in their economic discussion. And today's post, today's essay at Real Clear Markets, it's called Murphy's Law is Fed's Law and Everything is Wrong. Uh, for our international audience, what is Murphy's Law? Well, it's a common American idiom, an expression that, you know, I think a lot of people assume came out of World War II, like a lot of our common American idioms. It actually came out about a little bit later than World War II in the, early, in the late 1940s. And the modern version of it, because it's been updated, the modern version of it that I think that most Americans know is whatever will go wrong or whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And there's sort of a, you know, kind of a fatalism, ironic, you know, nihilism embedded in it that says, you know, we should just be prepared for things to go bad and not worry about it because, you know, that's just the way the world works. But that's not at all exactly, that's not how the original expression started and where it came about. And I think, you know, I think most people would prefer the original expression because it captured a completely different sentiment. Even though the wording was almost identical, what it really meant was very different. Well, before we get to Murphy, because there is a real Murphy, like there really is. I know. I was shocked, too, when I was looking, you know, doing some research on it. There was actually a guy named Murphy, <laughs> which is probably the exception to the rule, right? That's not true. There's a man that actually was called Phillips that invented the Phillips screwdriver, and maybe even there was a Phillips that invented the myth 
of the of the Phillips curve. All right, I'm I'm looking ahead a little bit to a to an episode. We're going to a part to a segment. We're going to be doing a little bit later. Let's get back to this one. Captain John Paul Stapp. Who was he in this story? He is really the central figure in Murphy's Law. And really, he's an unappreciated hero of American life that we don't really, you know, he's another one of those figures that did all these incredibly amazing things that we don't know about. Yet every time you and I get into a car, we owe a debt of gratitude to this guy. And this is a guy who was, he was also a military captain. He worked at Edwards Air Force Base, and he was an, he was also a, a, a medical doctor at the time. So he had a wide range of training, and they, his mission was to find out about safety. Safety uh, specifically, you know, in, in terms of test pilots riding around in these fast jets that were about to, to break the sound barrier. And what were the limits of the human body at such massive forces and high altitudes and low temperatures and, and low oxygen? But he also got into, you know, climbing into these rocket sleds to test the force, G-forces of deceleration and acceleration on his own body. He'd get into a rocket sled and propel himself along at almost the speed of sound and then decelerate as quickly as he possibly could just to test what it did to himself so that human beings would have some idea of what, what actually took place, what forces that the uh, human body underwent under great, great strain and great pressure. And of course, the application was not just test pilots and even just military jets. He, uh, Captain Stapp began working with the automobile industry, to helping the automobile industry understand what happened in uh, traffic collisions when cars get, you know, came together in the exact wrong way. What were the kinds of forces that people riding inside of, cor- of cars would experience in a high-speed crash or even a low-speed crash? A lot of the safety science that we have today goes back to this you know, early, the late 1940s period and what Captain Stapp was doing riding around in, in rocket sleds. And for anyone who doesn't know what a rocket sled is, it's, you can see one in the opening sequence of uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, which was the fourth Indiana Jones and which we will never speak of again. And Jeff, you were mentioning this guy's a hero. He would, act, he would have be covered and personal protection equipment all the time when he went through these things. He tell the story of when he was uh, flying essentially in his shorts. Yeah, he, he was an amazing guy. Like I said, he's, this incredible story. He put himself at risk and really no, no concern whatsoever for his own safety. And there's lots of additional stories about some of the trauma that his body went through, including what they called whiteouts, where the, I think the acceleration forces were so extreme, the blood moved all the way back into his head and left him essentially blind, temporarily blind. But, you know, back then, there was no science on this stuff. Nobody really knew it was going to happen. So even though he was blinded for, a, you know, I, I think it was a couple hours, maybe even a day, they weren't sure his vision was ever going to come back. And then he experienced something called a red out, where, all, where they, I think, uh, you know, where all the blood rushed forward into his eyes and busted his capillaries and things like that. I mean, amazing kinds of stuff that this guy put himself through because they were learning on the fly. Nobody had ever done this before, and they were trying to attempt to learn some very serious things about what makes, you know, I mean, you think about an automobile, how, how, is, you know, how um, irreplaceable is that to the modern world? Yet a big part of the, of the reason that that's the case is because of the science, the on-the-ground retail science that was taking place in the California deserts in the late 1940s. People just winging it, essentially. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what the equipment can do. Let's test the limits of everything that we're, that we're able to be able to accomplish. It was real courage, real heroism, and this is when Murphy comes into this story because he wanted to make sure that the equipment was working appropriately. So... Tell the story about. Yeah, I mean, that's a, if you're pushing the envelope, the edge of, of all human knowledge and in, 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 you know everything that we know, you can't do it. You know, half-assed equipment. You have to make sure that everything works. And so the environment that they had created was: look, we're winging it. We're putting all this stuff together. We're not really sure what we're doing. So we have to think ahead to every little detail. We have to think about what can go wrong. And so that's where the original Murphy's Law came in. Because, you know, Murphy, Captain Murphy was, you know, one of these military guys who just briefly enters the story. Um, there's a foul up about a couple of transducers, which are sensors that measure G-force. It wasn't a major issue. And I believe the original expression was, 
if it can't happen, it will happen. And what Murphy was saying essentially was, you know, look, we need to be aware of all of the things that can potentially happen because we've never done these things before and the consequences of failure can be catastrophic. So this is what I have. Maybe it's apocryphal, but Captain Murphy said when you heard about those transducers, if that guy has any way of making a mistake, he will. And then Stapp yeah, was, was the one that said, if it can happen, it will during a press conference. Right. It was Stapp who was, I guess, a, guy, a really not only a doctor and a really courageous son of a bitch, he was also a very witty guy and a very open guy and a very warm guy who had, you know, had to do this press conference a couple of days after Captain Murphy showed up and admonished these technicians that screwed up the transducers with, you know, with the raw Murphy's Law. And for the press, we're asking him, you know, you know, this is really dangerous stuff that you're doing. How can you, how can you go out there and push the, en the envelope of everything that, you know, human beings have done before and expand our knowledge and do all of these, these dangerous things? And he said, you know, basically what Murphy said, you know, what they, they started to call Murphy's Law because they start thinking ahead, if it can happen, it will happen. That allows them to be able to do these, these really you know, high-tech, high-dangerous high, uh, high kinds of things because they're always thinking in detail about what did we miss? What did we screw up? What can we potentially, what can potentially go wrong that we don't know that we need to overcome? And it's a really, it's an elegant saying. And so we're going to segue now to the Federal Reserve and how that story naturally lends itself to our present day. But before we do, I just want to read this passage of yours because I find it poignant and I wanted to share it with the audience. Quote, the original Murphy's Law was a hope-filled expression of harsh reality being surmounted by retail-level human genius. Simple, elegant, devastatingly powerful because it was small s science practiced in another one of those beautifully informal settings. No wonder it was corrupted. Jeff, segue into the Federal Reserve and the scientism and how it was corrupted and what last week's new uh, announcements, new grand strategy, how it all fits together. Well, you know, I think that's, that's, that's really the major point here is the original Murphy's Law, if it can happen, it will happen. There's, a, there's, a, there's an element of, of um, you know, humility involved in that. It's, you know, we think we got, we think what we know what we're doing but we have to be prepared for the possibility that what we think we know isn't what we really know. That's what it really says. It's like, look, we know we got things going. We're, we're pushing the envelope. We're doing all these, 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 uh, you know, high tech experiments. We're all, we're, we're really going beyond what we, what anybody has done before. So we have to have a little bit of humility in pushing that, that edge and, and always going for the edge and, and thinking, you know, human beings are not perfect and we're not perfectible. Therefore, we have to be able to look inward at ourselves and look at ourselves honestly and say, what did we maybe screw up? What could we possibly have screwed up? Because we don't know everything that we should know. And that's really the important point of the original Murphy's Law. That's why I like it so much better, because it starts from a place of humility, not fatalism, but more of, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to overcome it. But the way we're going to overcome these barriers is by being honest about the fact that we could be wrong and we could get something wrong and therefore we got to do something about it. Well, was the Federal Reserve being honest that they got something wrong? I guess they weren't explicit about it because they announced that they are going to let inflation run pure at a higher average rate. And the implicit explanation is, well, that's because we couldn't get our target. We couldn't meet our target because the employment situation wasn't as good as we had said. That's implicit. So were they being honest? Well, I think what's really going on with all, when you look, again, this is not just a, you know, one, one event or a one-off event, this grand strategy review that just wrapped up and was announced at Jackson Hole. This is a whole series of experimentations going on that go all the way back to August of 2007. So for 13 years, monetary policymakers have been experimenting with all sorts of, or what they say are all sorts of different monetary programs. 
and you have to ask yourself why are they doing this and what are you know what are all of these conclusions designed to say and yet the you know the explanations they keep coming up with are even more strange and more weird and more substantial every time they have to go through one of these explanations or go through these transitions from one type of monetary program to another type of monetary program and what it really comes down to is again going back to the original murphy's law being honest about failure and what what happens here is that the monetary policy makers are never honest about failure because the more evidence that shows monetary policy doesn't work the harder the tighter they grip to that very faith the idea that no monetary policy always works and therefore working backwards from science the way science is supposed to be instead we're going to try to figure out what's wrong with everything else monetary policy works and if it's not creating the results we want it's because everything else must be broken and that's as unscientific as it gets and when you actually look at and break down the literature the um, you know the data the the reasons the rational rationalizing behind what Jay Powell talked about last week what really they're saying here what they're really doing is fitting their predetermined conclusion into all this evidence that shows that they're wrong they start with the premise that monetary policy always works and because they can't find any evidence for it they're working backward to try to plausibly reverse engineer an explanation for how that could be that's right and so for our audience who didn't see last week's episodes so 24 part 1 and part 2 we spend a lot more time getting into the nitty gritty of what the federal reserve actually announced with the grand strategy but Jeff, to your point right now, my favorite analogy, and it's one I've raised before, so forgive me to your audience, it's the idea of what the Federal Reserve is doing now by saying we are correct and from there we can explain everything. My favorite analogy is the one of the that whirling spirographic web the planets had to follow if you put Earth at the center of the universe and that somewhat inexplicably that some planets loitered and then flipped back while others continued along without any with any slowdown uh, but like you said they had to fit the data first and then come up with an ex an explanation a hypothesis that explained their original assumption and ironically Jeff I'm going to turn to a religious figure to uh, help kind of make our decision between should we go with the complicated answer, the one the Federal Reserve is offering us, or the more simple one? And so I ask you, English Franciscan friar, William of Ockham, uh, he helped us decide which circumstance is more plausible here. Can you tell the audience, Jeff, off the top of your head, who was Ockham, and whether he was a scholastic philosopher and theologian or the inventor of a bladed tool used to uh, shave uh, hair? I don't know why they call it the razor, but it's a razor and nonetheless, right? And it, it's That's really, right. you know, it's the idea that sometimes when all of the evidence points toward one direction, you should probably follow what all the evidence is pointing toward. The simplest explanation. Well, this you know, it's not necessarily, I think there's, you know, there's a corollary to Occam's razors that says, you know, essentially what I just stated, that when everything says this is what's going on, you shouldn't, you know, deny the evidence even that much stronger. You know, your resistance to the evidence shouldn't be proportional to the strength of the evidence. And so it's almost an inverse relationship with the Fed because the more, the longer it goes that they can't do what they say they can do, the more evidence piles up that it's not working, that monetary policy failures, they tighter, they cling to this fantasy that, that oh, the next QE will work or five more years of ZERP will, work, will be the ticket. And that's how you end up being Japan. That's how you end up in the Japanese situation, which nobody wants to talk about, but that's exactly what's going on. And J Japanification, by the way, was never really about zombie banks and all the stuff people talked about in the 90s. It's about exactly what we're talking about here. It's the unscientific process of never being honest enough to say, oh, what if you know, central bankers saying, what if, we've, what if we've got all this wrong? What if we're the problem? You know, once you realize that might be the possibility, all the stuff, like you mentioned with the Ptolemaic uh, uh, viewpoint of the solar system, once you remove Earth from the center, you don't need all these convoluted, weird kinds of engineers, you know, all of these kinds of, of, of you know, big and, and, and weird stuff. You can just look at things straightforward and say, this is, the evidence is what the evidence is because it makes sense. 
Jeff, you end this essay with a fourth version of Murphy's Law. Do you have that handy or should I read it out? Uh, I think I have it handy. It's the, they've perverted Murphy's Law. The Federal Reserve in particular has perverted Murphy's Law into another iteration that says monetary policy will never go wrong, so everything else will. And so we've prog- the evolution has gone from if that guy has any way of making a mistake, he will, exasperation, to if it can happen, it will, humility, Whatever can go wrong will go wrong, fatalism, and then now your fourth version, the one we're living through, hubris. All right, Jeff, well, let's move on to our second topic. This article is posted at Alhambra Investments, and it's about Richard Harris Clarita, who the audience may not know, is the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, a professor at Columbia University, and former advisor to PIMCO. His research focuses on dynamic stochastic general equilibrium modeling and has published in leading academic journals on monetary policy, exchange rates, interest rates, and international capital flows. He's also an accomplished singer, and he had released a 13-track album in 2016. Maybe I'll put it, I'll put it as a soundtrack for this episode. We'll see. So on the last day of August 2020, he delivered a speech to the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And in your blog post at Alhambra Investments, you encourage us to read the entire speech. There's a very small chance, but I believe that some of us may not read it. So Jeff, can you tell us what Clarita told the audience? He basically gave the details behind this, again, the grand strategy review and the shift, the supposed shift to average inflation target and why the Federal Reserve was avoiding the truth, which was monetary policy doesn't work. So what, what, can, what can economists, and as you pointed out, Emil, incredibly accomplished economists and all the right, checks all the right boxes, has all the right pedigree, everything is perfect in, in his mind except for the fact that they won't consider the fact that monetary policy doesn't work the way they want it to work. And so what do we have to do as a good economist, as economists in good standing? What do we have to do to explain how monetary policy always works as it does in all of our DSGE models and the fact that none of the evidence shows that in the real world, the monetary policy works? How do we bridge that divide? And so his lengthy speech all, with all sorts of gobbledygook and technical jargon filled with R stars and all sorts of other ELBs and things like that were a way to how can we get, how can we avoid looking at the truth and still explain the real world as it actually is. So that's what, that was my summation of his speech. Here's my summation, just a few bullet points. Uh, the old policy was fine. They implemented a new strategy. The old one was perfectly fine because after all, quote, the longest economic expansion in history. Uh, remarkable. Yes, because we always shift policies in a major way when things are working really well because everybody knows that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, remarkable belief in the importance of central bank policy rates. It was interesting how they disavowed knowing what the maximum level of employment is and thus do not offer a numerical goal, but they do know what the inflation number is, and they do offer a numerical goal for that one. Uh, They threw the maximum employment models under the bust, suggesting doubt in their ability to manage the economy, but then they come back over the top saying that they'll be able to respond if the model is right regarding there being too much employment and that there's being inflation. And then just a fascinating dogma regarding expectations policy. The whole speech left no room, no quarter to the idea of defining, identifying, measuring, and mapping the creation and distribution of money. It was just all about messaging. That was my It's weird, right? I mean, because central banks are supposed to do money. That's what we're all taught. That's all we're left to believe is that this is really a simple thing. If you want to hit an inflation target, you, put, you, you intervene in the money supply in just the right way and you get it because inflation is always over the long run a monetary phenomenon. But I think what you, know, what you just pointed out, Emil, is really interesting in the fact that 
you know, we'll get to this a little bit, I think, is that they decided we're no longer going to even quantify the employment side of things because why? Why do we not now? Why are we doing less than we did before? Shouldn't we be doing more? Shouldn't we be attempting more quantification, more mapping, more understanding? And they're going, they're going in the opposite direction. And the reason is because things are not going the way that they, they said they were going to go. And so rather than explain or have to explain in detail why that is, they're just saying, oh, well, you know, it didn't happen this way. Therefore, we're not going to, we're not even going to bother anymore. But they're going forward with more confidence. So they yes, disavow- even more, much more confident. This is nothing was wrong with the way we we're doing it before. But now we're going to explain less and be more confident that we're, in what we're doing going forward. And so they said we're not going to look at whether unemployment is unemployment rates are too low. Forget it. But we will if unemployment rates are too high. But then Clarita says, but we won't tell you what that is because it changes. It depends. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing because for a long time, economists were absolutely obsessed with the idea of full employment. That drove a, everything in monetary policy, almost everything in monetary policy, was designed, about, or designed around this idea of full employment. Full employment was a big deal in academic, in academic economic circles. And all of a sudden, here they are in 2020 saying, we're no longer going to define full employment. Wait a minute. What? Wait a Hold on here. Hold up. You can't say for decades full employment is guiding everything we do and then finally say, uh, nah, never mind. We're not, we're not even going to define full employment anymore. And the reason is, you know, again, it's obvious what they're doing here because they said, especially going back to 2014 and 15, okay, we're, the economy is finally recovering. We've hit full employment. And because they kept saying we're hitting full employment but not getting any confirmation or corroboration of that fact, instead of thinking, well, maybe the economy is not progressing the way we thought it was, maybe monetary policy didn't work the way we think it did, they're now saying, well, maybe full employment is just too complicated. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> how do we avoid the simplest explanation? Well, we won't even talk about it anymore. This, this key concept that was a key part of monetary policy for very long, we'll just forget about it. It never happened. We don't even know full employment anymore. It's, again, it's unscientific. So when we reach full employment, when there are too many people employed, theoretically this should translate into rising wages because businesses are desperate for workers and they'll pay them anything. So they'll raise wages and that will then raise prices as it cascades out through the economy. And how this comes into the most uh, recent time period is that the Federal Reserve is now saying we raised rates too soon. Our models were not correct. That's what Clarita was saying, that our models are not working correctly. But he wasn't the only one that gave a speech this week. Uh, Lael Brainerd also gave one. And according to the Yahoo Finance article that summarized the two, they were saying that they raised interest rates too soon. Jeff, this one floored me. Can you imagine? Do you, can you tell the audience when they did raise interest rates? Well, remember, they started raising interest rates in December of 2015. And again, it gets back to because in 2015, they believed that full employment had been reached. And at full employment, you start breaking the economy lest you get this, you know, as you pointed out, the competition for workers that then companies pass along to their customer, the increased cost to their customer base in the form of consumer price increases, which we all know of as inflation. So the, the Federal Reserve's mandate up until recently has always been full employment. Once we reach full employment, the Fed needs, Fed believes it needs to stop economic growth or at least slow economic growth down before it becomes too good, which, I mean, that's a separate topic to begin with. I mean, the idea that growth can ever be too good or that wages can grow too fast. That's just, I mean, that's completely stupid. But anyway, that's, that's how monetary policy is conducted. Once we reach the full employment level, then we start to break the economy. And now what we're supposed to believe from what uh, Brainerd said and what from Clarita said was that raising the federal funds rate from zero to two and a quarter percent was a major massive imposition on the economy. And that's what caused all the sorts of problems over the last couple of years. And of course, that's ridiculously absurd too, because if the economy is in any way strong or healthy, 
a raising a raising money rates are are consistent with it. We're supposed to see interest rates come off of zero and go to something more like normal. And if you think two two percent or whatever it was, two fifty at the top range of the federal funds rate was any sort of hardship under robust economic conditions, I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. That's right. Here's a quote from Brainerd. Quote: There would have been a different concept of inflation and a sense that there was no need to preemptively withdraw, to prepare to withdraw on the basis of an expectation of inflation materializing. Because you, Jeff, me, everyone in the economy, we saw that quarter point increase in, at the end of 2015, and we just ran for it because we knew that inflation was coming. So can you explain to the audience this sort of circular logic that they don't want us to think that inflation is coming anytime soon because we were thinking it was a ceiling, the inflation, the 2%. Yeah, it gets back to the inflation target and what we talked about in our last group of episodes last week, which was the idea that we're, we're all so impressed with the Federal Reserve that the reason they haven't been able to achieve their inflation mandate is because we're all so impressed with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, since Paul Volcker, as we all know, and we've all been taught since day one, is an inflation fighter. And so as soon as we believe the Federal Reserve is successful in increasing inflation, we also simultaneously believe they're going to take the inflation away. And that's how we, we went with decade without getting inflation, because the Federal Reserve simultaneously told us we want inflation and we're going to take it away. That's what we're supposed to believe has happened over the last decade. We believe the Fed is too good in wanting inflation, but also too good in taking it away. And the result was, well, every time we got close to 2%, inflation fell again. And it's, you know, it's utterly ridiculous, the idea that they can be both things at both times whenever they need them to be both things at both times. And the reality of the situation is, again, the simplest explanation is monetary policy just isn't effective. That would explain everything. We don't have to go on both sides of the argument and make ourselves the center point of each side, contradicting each, each one. And in your article, you use the following words and phrases, dummies, morons, and knuckle-dragging <laughs> rubes. But the audience will be surprised. You're not referring to the Fed. That's what no. you're saying. The Fed sees us as being not smart enough to understand what the Fed is doing and this whole strategy review was to just make it plain to us Arizona State University graduates, for God's sakes, we're not raising inflation uh, targets, expect or we are expectations, but we're not going to be raising rates. So get out there and invest in the real economy. Right. And I think that's the major point behind a lot of, of the stuff going on, too, is that, look, this is all messaging, as you pointed out earlier. This is all about signaling to the real economy. So if, you know, if, if something doesn't work in monetary policy that's an expectations-based policy like that, then the Fed has to believe, well, maybe the people are too stupid to understand what we're trying to tell them to do because they're not doing what we want them to do. So the signal's getting messed up. So let's be really clear about the signal. That's really what the grand strategy review amounts to. What they're trying to say is, hey, morons, we're telling you we're not going to be inflation fighters. So stop acting like we're going to be inflation fighters. And they really believe this is going to be the answer to our problem because they believe we think, oh, we've taught these people too well. They believe we're inflation fighters, and that's why we can't get any inflation. <laughs> it's just this convoluted nonsense, which av always avoids the really simple explanation is, hey, the problem isn't us idiots in the real economy. It's that you guys don't do money, and you're pretending to be a central bank, and that pretending to be a central bank might work at times, but there are really times when we actually need a central bank. And, you know, you, you often say that they're just repeating the same policies. And it struck me as you were explaining right now that they're repeating forward guidance, just how they yeah. repeated symmetry with a new plan that's called average inflation, even though it's symmetry. And now they're being very clear about their intentions. Absolutely. Much how Absolutely. It's the same. It's exactly right, Emil. You go back to forward guidance. Forward guidance is exactly what we just talked about. It's the Fed trying to say, we're not going to worry about inflation. Then a couple of years later, because that didn't work, then it's symmetry. Symmetry is 
we're not going to worry about inflation. That didn't work. So now we're getting into an average inflation target, which is them saying, we're not going to worry about inflation. It's the same thing. And they keep coming back to this idea that it must be the signal. We're not saying it right. We're, there's a wording problem here. And it's always, you know, how do we repackage it so that the idiots understand what we're trying to do? Because we're geniuses and we know what we're doing and it's not working. So the problem is you, not me. And that's what it really comes down to. And it goes back to the previous segment with Murphy's Law and really the scientific process, which is you have to be, you have to be honest enough with yourself to consider the possibility that, yes, you are wrong. You, Ben Bernanke, you, Janet Yellen, you, Jay Powell, maybe this monetary policy pop, psychologist, pop psychology puppet show isn't exactly as powerful and as, as effective as you think it actually is. I don't think so, Jeff. I think they just need to keep doing the same thing over and over. And even though it's not working, it eventually will. Let's move <laughs> yeah. on to... The answer is always more time, right? If we just give it more time, it'll work. We'll give it more time in a different package, in a different shiny, you know, we'll make it look more appealing and then we'll explain ourselves and in a way that a second grader could understand and we'll do all of these things and eventually all those things will combine into... Uh, something that works when in, when it, when the reality of the situation is all those things combine into Japan. You know, you just mentioned Leo Brainerd's idea that they raised rates too soon, and they would have done things differently if they didn't define full employment. But what would that what would that have looked like? It would have looked like an uninterrupted string of zero interest rates for what more than a decade, going on two decades, which describes what situation best, the Japanese situation. So that's essentially what she's saying is that oh, we raised rates because we really are Japan. The economy is so weak, it can't handle even a small amount of, of increased uh, uh, increase in the, in the money market rate. Nobody pays it any attention to. And that's the reason why we have all these problems, which is another way of saying the economy is so feeble, we really are Japan, and we'll never get off of zero interest rates. It's sad, Jeff. It's sad. But let's move on to our next article. And this one might be a little bit more fun, actually. And it's called... Fat Chance, Flat Phillips, and these are not the names of a tag team wrestling duo. It's title of your August 31st post at Alhambra Investments. Jeff, the Federal Reserve has been wrestling with the relationship between inflation and employment. What's the problem and how does this relate to our previous segment with Richard Clarita's uh, speech? Well, we're going we're gonna to go into Richard Clarita's speech, and we're going to actually talk about what it is that's happened and why they're, you know, whether it's the background academic studies say, what are, what are all the scholarly papers writing about, what are they trying to, what are they trying to explain and how this stuff is going on, and, and, you know, why are we getting into an average inflation target? What, is, what are they really trying to say here about full employment in the Phillips curve, the relationship between economic growth and tight labor markets and consumer prices and inflation. Can really you just it starts again very quickly, what is the Phillips curve? One sentence. What's the thesis theory? The Phillips curve is what we said before. It's the relationship between unemployment and inflation. That is simply that when unemployment drops down to a certain level, what we call, we used to call full employment, that would trigger consumer price or inflation because companies would compete for these scarce marginal workers that would drive up labor costs, which then companies pass along to their customers in the form of sustained consumer price increases. And Clarita said, okay, so we've, we've pulled up a graph. Before we get to what Clarita believes has happened, what is this graph showing? Is it showing just exactly what we discussed? It's a generalized, stylized graph of the, the basic concept of the Phillips curve, which is as output, as people expect output to rise, they also expect inflation to rise. That's why you have an upward sloping Phillips curve. Okay. What, it, you know, what had guided monetary policy into its rate hikes beginning in December 2015 was the idea is the arrows that I have shown down below. That output was going to be rising because remember they said the recovery is coming. We're at full employment. Everything's good. Therefore, we have to start raising rates because inflation was going to be the, the big story in 2018 and 2019 and moving forward. You have accelerating growth, tight labor markets, unemployment rate going down to its 50-year low, therefore guaranteed inflation. And of course, as we know now, I mean, we knew before, but as the Federal Reserve finally admits, that inflation never happened. Even though they spent years and years and years promising that it would happen, they're now saying, 
yeah, it didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen, both in 2015 and 16, when they first started raising interest rates, and then 2017 and 18, was because Clarita. Yeah, well, Clarita's saying, again, we're starting from the premise that monetary policy works and that it created a recovery, but we got no inflation that would corroborate the recovery. Rather than the simplest explanation, which is your premises are all wrong, the monetary policy didn't work, the economy didn't recover. Instead, we're, gonna, we're still going to hold fast to monetary policy working, but then how do, we, how do we explain how we didn't get the inflation that we all promised? Well, what they did simply was flatten out the Phillips curve. They are now saying, again, we're no longer going to define full employment, and the, and the consequence of no longer being able to define full employment is something like a flat Phillips curve, which, as you can see from the darker blue line, what that happens under a flat Phillips curve situation is that as economic growth, uh, as expectations for economic growth rise, as they said was happening in 2016, 17, and 18, it has very little impact on inflation because the curve is so flat. And why did this happen? Richard Clarita must have offered an explanation as to why this, the economy transformed like this. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a big point here, Emil, because you can't just flatten out the Phillips curve because it's convenient to your argument. You have to say, you have to give us a reason because what you're talking about here is a fundamental shift in the economic forces, basic economic, real world economic forces. And so if you're modeling different types of, of scenarios where that would happen, I mean, there has to be something substantial that would change one of the mo most basic fundamental relationships in all of the, the real economy. And if you go back through all of the literature, I, I, I use an example of a Cleveland Fed paper that I, that, I, uh, that I used in the article I wrote here. I think, I don't, I don't remember if Richard Clarita came up with his own arguments or if he was borrowing from them too. But when you go through those arguments, you know, things like frictions and all these other economists gobbledygook, none of them are really compelling. And in fact, in the conclusions of a lot of these papers, they're kind of like, yeah, we're just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping one of these explanations stick because we're really not sure we really have no idea of how the Phillips curve could even become flat. And again, it's our main theme for this show is they're simply fitting data to their real world premise, which they refuse to re refuse to acknowledge. It, it, it does monetary policy doesn't work. And so, how do we reverse engineer expl an explanation from the? Central banks are central, monetary policy is effective, but we can't find any evidence for those things. So now they have to change all of these fundamental relationships, which is nothing more than unscientifically fitting data to predetermined conclusions. It sounds a little bit like the explanation, this explanation, why did the Phillips curve flatten? We're not really sure. It sounds a little bit like the explanation for the great moderation. They offered three explanations, but the last one, the most plausible one, seemed like just luck, happenstance. Not really sure. Yeah, that's a really good point, Emil, because there's a lot of these things that happen, especially in the euro dollar era, where they're trying to say, you know, monetary policy, we really believe in it, but yet we can't really explain how it works. And that was okay. It was seemingly okay for a long time during the Great Moderation because everything seemed to be going really well. But as people were saying in the middle 2000s, especially with this enormous credit bubble showing up everywhere, you know, there might be consequences to not being able to explain this expectations view of monetary policy and how it really is supposed to work and how it might actually work under less than ideal circumstances. When the monetary system does go awry, what do we do then? Well, you know, central bankers have, last, have spent the last 13 years coming up with different explanations, not different ways of doing things. And so if we look at your third graph, you provide that less than ideal economic situation as being the possible explanation, as opposed to a flatter Phillips curve. Of course. Yeah, we don't need we don't need to flatten the Phillips curve because again, all the evidence shows that the economy really wasn't accelerating. It really hadn't changed, and the reason there was no inflation, there was no inflationary outbreak and acceleration, was because of that. It's simply the Phillips curve has remained the same because you guys are wrong about the state of the economy. And again, if you scroll down a little bit more in the article, Emil, you get to the charts. I mean, 
right there, the bottom chart. I mean, look, does, does, it, does it look like there was an economic boom at any point since 2008? I mean, really, where, where is this, this inflation-generating monster going to come from? There's no point along that way which would even remotely suggest exactly what Jay, uh, Jay Powell came into office suggesting, that the economy was accelerating momentously into this inflationary recovery that we've all been waiting for. The simplest explanation, I think this chart sums it up best, monetary policy doesn't work. And there's two parts of that. Look at where the deviation in the economy takes place in 2007 and 2008. What was 2007 and 2008? It was a monetary event. And ever since then, we've had all of these quote-unquote monetary interventions that never are, are, they never admit that these things don't work. They just try to repackage them, re-explain them, always the same thing and always the same results, which gets us back to, you know, our, our Murphy's, our new Fed's law derived from Murphy's law, which is monetary policy will never go wrong, so everything else will. And that's really what this chart says. It's when you think monetary policy is always going to work, everything else has to go wrong. And everything else has go wrong. I'm going to read, a con- going to read the conclusion to your article because it has devastating implications for the reputation and professional pursuits of so many members of the Federal Reserve. Quote, the only reason not to accept the results at face value is if you likewise can't accept the drastic implications behind what that means for central banks and their assumptions about the efficacy of monetary policies and how they actually work, as you were just saying. Jeff, that sort of wraps up the show for this week. Do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share with the audience, perhaps about markets where they're standing today? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. One final thought is that, look, the Federal Reserve made a huge deal out of their grand strategy review. They wanted you to know they put a lot of time and effort into it and that this was a massive change. As Richard Clarida tried to downplay, oh, yeah, we were happy with monetary policy before, but we all know that's crap. We all know that you don't go and undertake these major changes if you're actually happy. You don't just ditch full employment, a concept that had guided you for decades, if you don't think there's something majorly wrong with your your worldview and your framework. So over the last couple of months, they've been teasing out all of these things. You know, we had the flood of liquidity, major QE, dollar swaps, all that stuff previously. And then on top of it, we have this massive change in policy. The Fed's going to let inflation go nuts. They're no longer the inflation fire that we all thought they were since Paul Volcker. This was a huge deal, and it's been building and building and building, and stories in the media, this inflation thing, inflation, 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 it's everywhere. And then it just fell flat, like the Phillips curve that they've tried to reinvent. It just fell, the markets kind of shrugged, even the stock markets. They're like, eh, this is it? What do you mean by fell flat? Like, and when you say markets, which markets? Well, first of all, in the bond market, if the bond market was like, holy crap, this is really good stuff and it's going to lead to inflation, what would we expect to see in bonds? We'd, we'd expect to see a spike in yield. We'd, see, we'd expect to see, um, especially the interest rate swap market, completely change. Nothing happened there either. Even the stock market, which had been on this amazing, incredible run, it all seems to, seems to have peaked, at least in the short run, since Jay Powell spoke at Jackson Hole. And that, it's really... You know the 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 uh, the incredible, the incredibly positive in my mind possibility that the news was the peak in this, the inflation cycle. That you know the market was saying, okay, this is a big deal. The Fed's really making a big deal out of it. Let's get let's see what they have to say. Maybe they're going to come up with something really good this time. And he comes out with average inflation targeting, and the market just kind of shrugged its head. Both markets, stocks, bonds, interest rate swaps, derivatives, all these markets were kind of. Wow, they live down to our worst expectations. It has echoes of uh, 2016's Bank of Japan helicopter money when they, there was rumors during the summer that they were going to come out with something very serious in the fall, very serious. And uh, so the market's kind of, well, all right, let's take a look what's going to happen. And then the announcement, I believe it was in September of 2016, it was just, we're just going to do more of the same, except we're going to do one louder. And uh, maybe that's what's happening again. Markets gave them a chance, not too much of a chance, but a little, and now disappointment. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really important to contrast that with, as I was doing with the Ed Harrison of Real Vision yesterday, 
the contrast, the reaction, you know, go back to 2010 when they, you know, Jackson Hole again, August of 2010, Ben Bernanke hints that the Federal Reserve is going to do a second round of major money printing. What happened in the stock market? The stock market went zooming ahead, went, went ahead for a very long period of time, went, went far ahead. In even the bond market, treasury yields rose nominally because the bond market was like, okay, maybe a second dose might actually work. There was a substantial reaction in most markets, interest rate swaps, for example, same thing. Reactions in these markets that were like with QE2 that are nothing like we see today. Today, it's almost like the Fed, did the Fed announce something? We heard they were going to announce something, but did they? And so to me, that's, that's tremendously positive in a very limited sense. It's positive that people are no longer buying the crap. They're no longer, they're seeing these people for what they really are. They're just a bunch of charlatans and frauds waving their arms around, trying to make a big deal out of expectations, repackaging the same thing over and over again in a, in a very unscientific way. And, you know, the, the, the downside of that progress, though, is that, you know, what do we do about it? <laughs> We're still stuck with these people. So, yes, it's good that more and more people seem to appreciate monetary policy for what it actually is, but yet we need to make, take the next step, which is do something about it. Right, thank you, Jeff. I will talk to you again next week. All right, Emil, take care.